Hey friend, are you struggling to find consistent paid speaking gigs? Do you want to know the exact six steps that you can take to find and book more paid speaking opportunities in 2024? Well, we want to make that easy for you. We've created a new free resource with the help of Dan Irvin, one of our highly successful speakers on our team. Dan has booked over $100,000 in paid speaking gigs in the last few years, and his six-step process is going to help you maximize your chances of getting booked and paid to speak in any industry. You're going to learn how to get started prospecting, master discovery calls, and proposal emails and so much more. All you got to do is go to thespeakerlab.com slash steps and we're going to send you this 18-page guide straight to your inbox. Again, that is thespeakerlab.com slash steps and you're going to get that free guide. Hey, thanks for listening. You're awesome. Hey, what's up, everybody? Graham Baldwin here. Welcome back to the Speaker Lab podcast. We are so glad that you are here. We're so glad you are joining us. Hope you're doing well. Hope you're having a great day. And again, really do appreciate you joining us and uh, hanging out with us here on the podcast. Whether this is your first time tuning in or you've listened to all 182, today is the 183rd episode. We've got a lot of episodes still planned to come. And uh, we're closing in on episode 200 to come in a couple of months. So looking forward to that. And again, thanks for being here. So today we are talking with my buddy, Jonathan Fields. And uh, Jonathan is uh, does some speaking uh, also is just a, a wide-ranging entrepreneur, has his hands in, in a variety of different things, cover a bunch of different topics today. Uh, we talk about being an introvert as a speaker. Jonathan is, is a bit of an introvert. I am as well. We talk about that as well as a number of speakers that, that we know that are introverts. So we talk about that. Oftentimes people assume that in order to be a speaker, you have to be some kind of raging character extrovert on stage. And the reality is, is like that's just not true. And so we're going to dig into that today with Jonathan. We're also going to talk about just being comfortable in your own skin on stage, learning how to be comfortable. And we're also going to just kind of give a, a introspective look at being a speaker. So there's a lot of stuff that we get into here today with Jonathan. I think this is a really, really fun conversation. It's actually, we, we were talking about going a different direction and kind of ended up in this direction where we landed today. And I think you're really going to enjoy this. So let's get right into it. Here's my conversation with Jonathan Fields from jonathanfields.com. Enjoy. What's up, my friends? Grant Baldwin here. Hey, today joined by my buddy Jonathan Fields, who's a uh, writer, author, speaker, entrepreneur, all around great guy. And uh, Jonathan, appreciate you taking a couple minutes to uh, chat with us today. Uh, it's my pleasure. Thanks so much for inviting me. So uh, you are involved with speaking in a variety of different ways. So, but I know for you, one of the things that you do is go out and do keynotes. So, can you give us kind of a snapshot of what speaking looks like for you and how it fits into your business? Yeah. And by the way, as you can hear in the background, probably I live in New York City. So you'll hear <laughs> the occasional right. emergency street fight, whatever <laughs> it is happening outside my window. Yeah. I mean, my certainly the universe is speaking for me is, is a little bit unusual. I kind of exist on two sides of the quote business, if you call it that. And on the one hand, I, I go out and speak, uh, you know, I keynotes, workshop facilitations, on site for associations, organizations, companies, stuff like that. And, and on the other side of it, we, as like, go on, you know, the company that I run with my wife, we produce our own retreats, events, trainings, everything from two days in a room with eight people to four days in a 130 acre, you know, like sleepaway camp with 425 people living communally from around the world. So I have these two different perspectives, both from the, like being on stage, you know, side of it, and also being in a conference room side, and putting together stuff, like what are we actually looking for when we do stuff like that? 
Right. So I'm curious, do you prefer one or the other in terms of whenever you're going out and speaking? Or do you prefer doing more of like a, a large scale type of keynote? Or do you prefer more of a small, intimate type of group that you're working with? Maybe for a lo- it's a smaller group of people, but it may be for a longer period of time. Do you have a preference? Yeah, it's, it's something that I keep experimenting with, actually. I, which is kind of funny also, and I don't, I don't know if this is worth talking about, but I'm also an introvert, which is kind of funny when you think that we put on a 425 person communal living thing and you know, I'll be on stage in front of thousands yeah. of people. But so for me, I love being on stage. Um, there's, there's, I almost feel like I step into another role. Yeah. And I'm just kind of in this different space, almost a different identity to a certain extent, or, or expressing a different part of my identity when I'm up there. It's funny because a lot of people know me personally are like, you're kind of much quieter and you're really not all that funny when you're, sort of like, <laughs> when you're on stage. You're kind of funny. And I like that's kind of interesting to know. So there's something that I've noticed there's a switch that gets flipped when I'm serious. I really love, I, I enjoy that. And I enjoy large rooms also. Yeah. At the same time, there is something really powerful and purposeful about spending two days with like eight people or 10 people or spending five days with 30 people, you know, like in a like private retreat center in Costa Rica or something like that. Yeah. Uh, you can go so much deeper. So I think it, it satisfies different yearnings for me, you know, so I, I wouldn't necessarily say I prefer one over the other, but I think um, they each feed a different part of my of my reason for being. Well, it's interesting that you mentioned you're introverted. I, I think we may have even talked about it when uh, you were in town for an event a couple yeah. months ago that we, we connected at. And I find that personally, I'm the same way. I'm very introverted. I, I love being on stage, but I also enjoy not being on stage and going to a hotel room by myself or going staying at home by myself. So I'm curious then, because I find that a lot of speakers that I know who do a good amount of speaking are very introverted. And like you mentioned, that you would think it would be the opposite, that they're these kind of raging extroverts on stage. So I'm curious, do you find that that being an introvert is an advantage for you as a speaker? Or how do you feel like that that, that even plays into your role as a speaker? Yeah, I, I think it's got to, it's a double-edged sword, like almost everything in life. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? So on the one hand, I feel like, and I've done a ton of sort of uh, research into social orientations, you know, and and Susan Cain, who wrote the book Quiet, is, is a friend of mine. We've, we've bounced around a lot of this stuff because she did her year speaking dangerously also, like just before writing that book. And she is a fierce introvert as well. And um, I think for me, there's, um, on the one hand, what we know from the science is that folks who tend to be more towards the introverted side of the spectrum also very often allow more time for perception. So you see things uh, a little bit more. You're spending less time sort of putting out and more time taking in. And that kind of, you know, you're wired in a way where you're constantly scanning, you're giving attention, you are, you're understanding and seeing things that maybe people miss because you don't feel the need to have to constantly project. And I think when that is sort of your persistent state of being, it also helps you, I think maybe as a speaker, read the room um, and understand you know, rather than making it 100% performance or locked into a particular thing, really make it a more dynamic experience where you can, you're really sort of like seeing what's going on. That assumes, of course, that you've developed the skill set needed to adapt on the fly, that you are, and you've developed the confidence and the competence that would allow you to feel comfortable doing that it's- and responding to what you see in the room. So I, I think on that, on that level, it can be helpful. On the other level, it can also, from a pure business standpoint, I mean, when I'm I love being on stage, but the moment I'm done, like I don't want to work the room. I don't want to go to a dinner you that feel exhausted. Night. Yeah, like, I, just, I want to go walk alone. If there's like a, you know, like a bank or nature, you know, like you know, a bank along the river or something right. like that, I just want to go and be sort of like in solitude, you know. So I'll, 
I'm happy to do my thing and answer questions if there's a line of people afterwards, you know, like and be graceful with that. Of course, that's expected. And before, very often the night before, I'll decline any kind of invitations to join in some sort of event or gathering or dinner. And the same thing the night after, unless, you know, it's something really extraordinary that I feel like I need to do. So, and, and I think sometimes that can be perceived as either being a little bit standoffish or, you know, you may miss business opportunities because of that, because there may be people in those spaces who would be like, you could have conversations with that could then lead to other opportunities. No, I, th- I think that's very true, though, that, the, that especially after you speak, that you, you are on this emotional high that you just feel like on top of the world, there's nothing that can quite compete with or compare with that feeling of when you, you come off stage, but it quickly falls as you, your energy level just begins to plummet. And I just feel just mentally exhausted and, and, and drained. So wanting, seems like a lot of people who want to then chat with you or talk with you or interact with you or share their story or share whatever, just becomes really, really exhausting. So I'm curious then in how that works for you in a small group setting over a couple of days since since I know you mentioned you do several workshops and seminars and and that type of structure for introverts it can be very difficult because it is longer hours of quote unquote being on so how do you manage your your energy levels through that yeah so really two different things um, have become really important and in the beginning I managed my energy levels terribly <laughs> by doing that and I would end up like I come off two days or three days or five days completely and utterly gutted yeah i'd be like wow that was intense that was cool i'm a complete disaster right, right now right. <laughs> taking like a week my health would be terrible i'd get sick like psychologically i'm stressed out and i couldn't focus on work so i'm a little bit of a slow learner i guess so what i realized is that a there's nothing wrong with my wiring it's just it's the way i am it's totally yeah. cool and i would need to build sort of like scaffolding and structure around that so that I could be okay for a more sort of sustained engagement. So two things that I've, that I've sort of tended to do now, I build the agenda for any particular experience around in part around my ability to constantly step in and step out and step in and step out. So, you know, we'll have, we may go for 90 minutes and then take a pause and there'll be like a half an hour there. And that will be for people to sort of like step out themselves for people to like get to know each other, to develop relationships. But almost invariably during those windows, I'll vanish. Yeah. You know, like I'm not in the room, like sitting, like continuing to answer questions and continuing with the conversation. I step away and I'll actually let people know in advance that this is what I'm going to be doing. And this is why I'm doing it. So when they see me kind of vanish for a little bit, go out for a walk, get a breath of fresh air, like do whatever I need to do. They'll know that it's not because I'm an arrogant idiot who feels like I'm above them and I don't like feel like engaging with them or yeah. whatever other crazy stories they make up. They know that, in fact, this is the way that I am and it's completely cool and I love doing this. And at the same time, for me to serve them at the level that they're expecting, I need to do this so that when I do step back in and I'm present, I'm really there at my highest level for them. So that's one of the things that I do. The second thing is that very often we travel with a team. So if, for example, I know, you know we've done a bunch of stuff where we take a group of 35 people to Costa Rica and we do like an intensive deep dive for four or five days. Mm-hmm. Where we're living together, we're all in a, you know, kind of we take over a retreat center. And what I'll do with that is we'll travel with a team. So, you know, like for, if we've got 40 people, 35 or 40 people who are attending and participating, we'll probably have a team of like seven to 10 people with us. And that's part of that team is sort of like operations, you know, so they're just handling all the logistics, you know, 
when you're doing stuff like that, stuff breaks all the time. Stuff goes wrong all the time, whether it's, you know, technical stuff or like housing or food or whether it's, you know, like people going dark side, which tends to happen when you're doing a lot of processing, you know, so I will travel with a team of people who I know, love and trust who I've been traveling with for a, a long time to kind of, you know, become a faculty, like a de facto faculty where we trade facilitating and presenting, but we also do a lot of social stuff that is spread out. And we're also sort of fairly intentional about making sure at least a solid chunk of that team are raging extroverts. Yeah. So that they can serve serve the social needs of having our presence socially there with a lot of people while I get to spend whatever time I need sort of stepping back and stepping away. One of the things that you touched on earlier is, as you said, that that as a, even though you you may feel like an introvert, that whenever you step on stage, there's almost like this this different persona that comes out. Again, I found myself to be similar of whenever I'm on stage. It's it's not that I feel like I'm a different person. I don't know if it's just a heightened version of this stage persona, but I'm curious, like, do you have any thoughts on that of how do you feel comfortable on stage where you know it's not like you're you're acting or maybe in some sense you're performing but at the same time being true and authentic to who you are as a human and so that in in a very real way that you're the same person on stage as you are off stage or or is that even the thing yeah no it's funny because i've I've thought about that increasingly over the years um because i'm like okay am i just a sociopath here (laughs) Like, do I have two completely different personalities? And it's really, it's it's more like what you described. It's like, no, this is this is a part of me, but it's a part of me that is, you know, probably amplified a bit for the stage because if you have a large stage or if you have a large audience, a large room, you need to sort of, you know, like present the energy that fills that space or that right. creates right. thing. And in an odd way, I almost feel like there's a certain freedom to let more of the real me out on stage than I do in certain other settings, which is, I think, why I may sometimes be a little bit more humorous. I may be a little bit looser. And I think part of that is because so much of the interaction that we create in sort of like our bigger brand is through media. Mm-hmm. And so that's not a conversation. I can't see how people's faces and bodies are changing when I'm not in a room with them, I can't see how things are landing. And there's, they may hear my voice through earbuds, but there's a huge amount of the the communication conversation that's not happening because there's no visual, you know, like visceral element to it. Whereas, so I can't necessarily know how things are landing when I'm doing that through media or through print, you know, like we write books, right? right. right? So I'm sort of like in my mind, necessarily more constrained. And that's actually an assumption that I'm testing right now because I, I don't know if that's true or if I've, I've just assumed I have to be that way because the people whose writing I love the most and whose media I love the most actually is not constrained. Yeah. So I'm sort of like taking baby steps to see if I can get more comfortable being sort of like more of that real part of myself. But I almost feel like I let more of the real looser part of myself out on stage because I can see how it's landing and I, I can understand what's good and what's not and what's appropriate and what's not. And I can understand the more real fluid visceral dynamic when I'm there in a room. So I feel freer in a way to be me, which is a little bit odd. Do you ever get any type of, I wouldn't call it necessarily a negative reaction, but someone who would come up to you after seeing you speak and say, you seem different offstage than you do on stage. Is that ever an issue or a concern? Yeah, all the time. I'm, it's not necessarily a negative thing, but I've often had people say, you know, like there's a, a really noticeable difference between you up on stage and you on the podcast or on video or on other places. 
And the request has been more like, I'd love to to see and hear more of, of that in the media that you create, because we didn't know there was sort of like that side to you. Sure. But at the same time, like one of the things that you touched on earlier is that your energy level, and I guess, quote unquote, the persona that comes out is oftentimes reflective of the environment that you're in. So a conversation you and I having right now is a different conversation than if we're on stage in front of, you know, 5,000 people, or if one of us is presenting a, you know, some type of presentation, it's just a different dynamic. And so you have to raise your energy level in some ways and raise your persona, I guess, in some ways to match the environment that you're in. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, adjusting amplitude is a really important skill set. And, and honestly, it's one that I'm probably not great at. It's, it, I think it's something that I'm becoming increasingly aware of. And I'm sort of running experiments to try and figure out, especially because I bounce between, I mean, the media we, that we produce on the podcast. So I'm sitting right now in my home recording studio. And it, you know, it's, it's a small room surrounded by all sorts of padding and stuff like that. And you have headphones on and you know, broadcast mics in your face. And it's really intimate. Yeah. You know, so it would be very awkward <laughs> if I was like anywhere close to the level of amplitude and energy that I would project on stage, let alone even a right. bigger room. Like part of my job when I'm conducting a podcast is like job number one for me is to create safety. Yeah. You know, and that very often means I create a very chill, peaceful, welcoming space. And that requires me to be, you know, <laughs> I've seen like the occasional comment on uh, like iTunes on the podcast. It's like, is this guy stoned? <laughs> <laughs> he is really relaxed. Right. It's like, it's like a Jeff Spicoli imitation from Fast Times. And I'm like, no, nah, it's just, you know, like sometimes we just get into this really sort of deep meditative space together. And sometimes, you know, like I'll find myself starting out in that space, speaking on stage. And I'll realize quickly like, oh, this actually isn't where I need to be right now. And I'll kind of have to you like dig down and be like, okay, so we need to sort of like change the energy. I need to do something to, to be different on stage. It's a little bit of a two-sided equation because you have the energy level of the audience, but you have the energy level of your own self and what you're kind of bringing to the environment. Do you find that it's effective or beneficial to bring some of that quiet, calm confidence that you might have in a one-on-one interview type of setting to bring that on stage in front of an audience of, of 500 people to help them feel calm and relaxed? Does that work on stage for you? Yeah, a hundred percent. So I will very deliberately now, much more deliberately now in the last year I've been playing with this, I'll vary between that. So for me, the work is increasing sort of like the energy and the amplitude, like that's, that's where more of the effort comes. But then I also know like there's, you just like the story lies in, in contrast, you know, like it's the same thing on stage I found. And to be up and sort of like constantly projecting a loud and hyper energetic. I know that's the sort of the energetic state of some people who are on stage. That's not me. Yeah. I create a lot of variation between sort of like very quiet, introspective, contemplative moments and you know, like much more high energy or funny moments. And, and that is increasingly, it's sort of my natural thing, but it's also increasingly intentional because I think of so much of what I've learned doing so many interviews over so many years now. And if I take some of the the skills that I've learned to create extraordinary conversations on a microphone, I found that you can adapt them to the stage. So for example, you know, I learned very early on that one of the most powerful things that you can do when you're on the mic with somebody in a studio is you ask a question and then somebody answers. And then before you ask the next question, even if you know you, you want to follow up on it, you just like count to yourself three, two, one. 
allow three seconds of dead space. Those three seconds, while remarkably short, are so deeply uncomfortable for the average human that another person feels the need to fill that space. Mm -hmm. And when they fill that space, almost invariably what they say is the stuff which is no longer on message. And it is the most interesting stuff because it wasn't planned. And it kind of takes you to this different place and very often down a whole different tangent. And at the same time, when you take that to the stage and you can be comfortable with a pause, when you can be comfortable with silence on stage and just put something out, you know, so there is, I haven't told this story on stage in a while, but I've actually been encouraged to start telling it again, where there was, I live in New York City, as you know, and I've lived here for the better part of my life and grew up just outside of the city. So I was here during 9-11. And there's a story that I tell about how I actually started a yoga studio, literally sort of like in the shadow of 9-11 in New York City, in the heart of Hell's Kitchen. But I don't tell that part of it. So I tell the story and I kind of say, you know, like, three-month-old baby, recently married, a new home. And I decided, you know, I got in my head this thing that I want to start a yoga studio in the city that I love so dearly without identifying the city or the timing. And then, you know, some variation of, I tell more of the story, like I signed a six-year lease for a floor in a building in New York City. Oh, by the way, the city was New York. The date was September 10th, 2001. Three, two, one. Right. And when you hit one, all the jaws in the audience lower and like, you hear like an audible gasp when they actually, because it takes them a couple of seconds to realize, wait, September 10th. Oh my God. Yeah. So I think, you know, like, and of course I'm quiet when I say that. (laughs) So I think like learning, I think the two different modes of creating media in a very intimate way and then being on stage, they feed back to one another in a way that I hope at least helps both of them. How do you learn to get comfortable with those pauses? Because that pause is extremely effective from an audience standpoint when you're delivering something heavy or something serious or something poignant and you just want it to to land and give people just a second to process it. But like you're saying, from a, a speaker perspective, any amount of time that you're not saying something feels like an eternity. Is that something that you're just consciously practicing and working on when you're on stage? Or, or how have you become more comfortable and confident landing a pause and letting it sit there? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. I don't know if I can sort of tell you the how behind it. I just know that I have. My sense is just that doing it so often now and making just a regular part of how I am in both conversation and on stage, it's become more comfortable. It's all, I think it's probably just a matter of exposure therapy, to, to yeah. be honest with you. Like the more you do it, the more you see that it makes a difference, the more comfortable you get with it. And the more you realize you won't actually lose people by doing that, you'll gain them. Do you find something similar in terms of just your confidence on stage as you've become more comfortable and confident in terms of being who you are, of letting that other side of you come out? Do you find that that has just come with time or is that something that you've you've worked on? I'm wondering for, for a speaker who may be listening going, okay, I've done a couple of speaking engagements and it's still just every time I'm on stage, I feel alive, but at the same time, it's it's a very vulnerable feeling. I'm, I'm exposing myself in front of an audience and so learning to be more comfortable and confident with who I am on stage is that something that you you feel like has just come with time or is there anything else that you've done? Yeah, I think, yes, it's come with time, but it's also come with being more intentional about pushing myself to tell more personal stories, to, to spend more time just allowing myself to be me. And the more 
it also comes with reinforcement. You know, there are times where we all go up on stage and we just know, wow, that was not my best. <laughs> you know, you do anything long enough and you repeat anything long enough and you're going to have moments where it's just not good. You don't, sometimes you know why, and sometimes you just really don't know why. But then there are times where, you know, you take those risks and you're like, that was great. And you get feedback and people are like, I don't know what was different, but I saw you at this place last year and this felt really different in a way that's better. And you know what was different. You know that you actually allowed yourself to go to a place where you were more personal, more vulnerable, a little bit, you know, like tell a story that maybe you don't know how it's going to land, but then it lands well. So for me, yeah, I think it's blend of exposure therapy with also knowing that sometimes it's going to work and sometimes it's not, but this is how you hone the blade. Yeah. You know, it's like comics, right? You know, they right. say like, you don't even know if you have the ability to be a good standup until you've been doing it for seven years. Yeah. yeah. And then at that point, then you start to hone your craft. Right. <laughs> um, and I think that the expectation very often with speakers, especially early in the career is I'm either good or I'm bad or or if I'm, you know, if I'm really good, like I'm going to know it immediately and I'm, I'm going to be awesome for, you know, like, okay, so maybe I have to do it, you know, like 10 or 15 times, right. but then I should be really sort of like dialed in. And, and what you learn over time is that there is that rare, rare individual who steps on stage and there's something like that. But the vast majority of, of the most of us, and I don't know whether you're that rare individual or not, but for me, I'm absolutely not. You know, like it's, it's work. It is. It is very much work. Yeah. And it's one thing that we, we tell speakers all the time is that the, that whenever you're developing a talk, you're developing a story, it's really an educated guess. You have no idea how it's going to land or how it's going to resonate or how it's going to, to work with an audience until you're actually in front of that audience. And and to touch on something that you said earlier, when you're, you know, you, you put out a, a podcast or a book or an article, you don't see the live reaction to that versus whenever you're speaking on stage and you tell a story and you leave that pause there. And you can actually see on people's faces if this is working or if this is not working or if they're they're nodding or, or kind of where their reaction is based on, on what it is that you're telling there. So I guess I'm also curious then, because you found it makes such a difference to resonate with an audience when you share those stories that are more vulnerable and that show, I don't know, maybe just peel back the curtain and show a different side of you. There's also that line of being too vulnerable or sharing too much where it makes an audience uncomfortable. So how do you walk that fine line where an audience can really resonate with you, but it, it doesn't make them uncomfortable or, or feel awkward? Yeah, it's, it's such an important point, right? And it actually builds on what I was saying. It's funny, like as I'm talking this out with you, I'm realizing how much interplay there is between producing podcasts and being on stage. And when I said that, you know, I view my primary job um, when I'm in the studio recording conversations as creating safety, because from safety, everything else, you know, like amazing comes. I think it's the same thing when you're talking about what you're talking about, which is I think part of your job on stage is also to, create safety so and when you go to a place where it feels so dangerous it feels so edgy you know it's vulnerable for sure but you go past a point where people feel safe anymore they're like this is too much like you're letting me too deeply into your life this is it's too violent it's too upsetting it's too you know like based in grief it's too if there's whatever it may be there tends to be a tipping point where if you pass that, the audience no longer feels safe. And if you do that, I think it's kind of game over at that point, but not in a good way. Yeah. You know, it's very hard to reel anyone back from that place because then they will feel that lack of safety and you've just lost trust because you're no longer taking them on a journey where they feel safe. 
Right. You know, so I think people want to be pushed. They want to be inspired. They want to feel emotion. They want to learn. And at the same time, they want to feel safe along the way. And a lot of it does depend on the environment and where you're speaking, meaning that if you're giving a, a 45 minute keynote to 500 people that don't really know each other or know you, then it's kind of a different environment versus if you're on day three of a 10 day workshop with 10 people that you've been able to really connect with and open up with and, and share life with. Well, then on the third day and you really kind of pull back the curtain on here's some stuff that's you know happened or happening or whatever it may be, it's just a different environment where that's going to land or, or not land depending on the, on the setting of of who you're speaking to. Yeah. And I mean, like if I kind of flip over into my organizer hat with this, and I think about what we do with larger scale events also. So like the, you know, the camp that we do where we have 400 something people come and they're also, this is not just sort of an event. They're living communally for three and a half days in kids bunks, you know? So if there was ever a time for, you know, like full blown grownups to revert to middle school, (laughs) (laughs) right. So we've learned over the years like that safety in that environment is mission critical too on every level, emotional and physical safety. So of course for physical safety, like we have precautions and a nurse on staff, but for emotional, just psychological safety, you know, we have a very large crew of volunteers that are in each bunk. We have a whole staff of people who also part of their job is to present workshops, but a big part of their job also is to create this experience of safety. We've been working together for a long time. They know us. They know what we're about. They know our values. And they know, they kind of all know why they're there and what we expect from them. Like we have coaches who are there for camper meltdowns. (laughs) Just so that if you're feeling, if you're feeling the feels and stuff is coming up, even really good stuff, but it's just emotional. You know, we have folks who are there to help you feel safe and move through it rather than feeling like, okay, there's this is no longer safe and I, I'm just going to leave. Yeah. Interesting stuff. Well, Jonathan, this has been really interesting and, and this has a, uh, been a really fascinating conversation. I think it's going to really resonate with a lot of people. You've touched on the camp. Uh, for people that are curious on that, tell us more about that. Yeah, sure. So, so at the end of every August for three and a half days, we produce this thing called Camp GLP, which is short for Good Life Project. And it's basically three and a half days um, where we take over this gorgeous 130-acre sleepaway camp, 90 minutes outside of New York City for a blend of workshops, act, like all the stuff that you did as at camp as a kid yeah. without all of the teenage angst, <laughs> you know, so there's, there's all the play activities, there's creativity, but there's also all sorts of learning on personal and professional development and workshops and programs. And, but fundamentally more than anything else, it's just a place where you can step out of your ordinary life, drop the facade and be with people who just say, you're good. Like, let's just hang out and enjoy life. And it's, um, this will be our fifth year of doing it right now. It's an amazing experience and all that. It's actually, it's kind of become so much bigger than we thought it would be. And it's also become bigger than us, which is really kind of a cool thing to be a part of. Awesome. Well, if people want to find out more about the camp or just about you and some of the projects that you've got going on, some of your different books, where where can we go? Yeah. Best place is goodlifeproject.com and just click on all the different things and you'll find whatever you want. Awesome. Thanks for the time, Jonathan. Appreciate you. Yeah. Thank you. All right, there you go. Hope you enjoyed that conversation with Mr. Jonathan Fields. Again, you can check out his stuff over at jonathanfields.com. Hey, once again, I would remind you, if you haven't already, definitely stop by and check out freespeakerworkshop.com. Again, that is freespeakerworkshop.com. It is a free resource that we offer where we're teaching you all about a step-by-step system on how to actually find and book paid speaking gigs. So if you haven't checked that out, again, stop by, check out freespeakerworkshop.com. All right, my friends, that wraps up episode 183. We will catch you next time. You're awesome.